Mac Power Users, episode 430, Touching Base with Marco Arment. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with my pal, David Sparks. Hello, David. Hello, Katie Floyd. How are you today? I'm well. And we are back. It's been a while uh, with a longtime friend of the show. Uh, you probably know him from podcasts such as the Accidental Tech Podcast, as well as Overcast and Marco.org. It is our good pal, Marco Arment. Welcome back to the show, Marco. Thank you very much. Good to be back. It's been a while. It's been, what, a couple of years? Yeah. We'll, we'll put a link to your last episode in the, in the show notes, but I, I think it's been a couple hundred episodes at least. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Thanks for having me back. It's, it's an honor. Well, I, you know, we, we were waiting until we turned it into watch power users because we feel like you would be a great <laughs> guest for that. But then we just said heck with it. He probably knows a few things about the Mac, too, so we'll, we'll bring him back. Yeah, a few. Ep- episode 99 was, uh, wow. was the episode. Okay, so that's, I, I don't know, we kind of fell off the wagon there. We got it. We'll, we'll, you will not have to wait 300 episodes to come back, assuming you want to. We'll get you back sooner. <laughs> At least it was a memorable number that we had you on, you know. There you I mean, go. 99 is kind of a good one. <laughs> so memorable, all three of us forgot it. <laughs> yeah. Well, after you do 400 of them, it, it does, they do kind of blend together a little bit. Totally understandable. Yeah, but it, it has been a long time, Marco. And in the meantime, since we had you here last, you um you have developed this amazing uh, podcast app that we all love, Overcast. Um, I I guess I should talk to you about this later. Maybe this is an offline conversation. I tried to quit Overcast this year, uh, because of Siri, and realized that no, Overcast still just wins. It's it's a great app. And thanks for bringing that to us. I'm just looking at the show notes for episode 99. Uh, let's say we talked about Instapaper and Downcast and something called Downcast. New- yeah, News.me. Yeah, because that was obviously before before uh, before Overcast existed. Yeah, Downcast is is the podcast app I used for a little while before I made Overcast. That's kind of what's one of the reasons why my home screen of Overcast, where it has like the played and unplayed, is kind of like Downcast's home screen. There's there's a reason for that because <laughs> that's what I was that's what I was accustomed to. But yeah, but the Siri thing, like, you're totally right. Like, I wish people didn't have to make those decisions. Like, I wish I could offer Siri support. And, and hopefully, you know, maybe this summer they'll give us that. I, I don't know. But um, hopefully someday that that shouldn't be a reason why you can't use a third-party client. Yeah, it's and honestly, it's it's really if someone is out there listening on the podcast app and they like it, you know, bless you. But I, it was, a, it was a significantly reduced experience for me. The, uh, just getting it even just to remember play place. And like, I have CarPlay and in CarPlay with overcast, I guess I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, but let me just get this off my chest uh, with overcast with CarPlay. It does the, the, you know, if you hit the forward or backward button, you know, the advance, it, it does the, the behavior that a normal person would expect, it skips forward, I think, 30 seconds or back 30 seconds. So if you can't, if you miss a part, you can rewind a few minutes and hear it again. With Apple's podcast app, the behavior, if you hit the forward, it skips to the next podcast in your playlist, whatever that is. So it entirely skips to the end or it goes all the way back to the beginning. Why on earth would that be the default behavior, Apple? I don't understand. <laughs> Well, that is, you know, like they inherited those controls basically from CD players. And f- and that is the default behavior. Like if that's that's what I'm supposed to be doing. It just became a convention for all podcast apps to basically override that and to interpret like next track and previous track commands from 
you know, headphone buttons or Bluetooth clickers or car buttons uh, to interpret those as seek forward or back 30 seconds instead of seek to the neck track. And then what used to be the, I don't know if they do this now, the, the, the behavior uh, that CDs did as, as we all remember uh, when you would hit previous track is first, it would go to the beginning of the current track in a podcast. If you do that, it loses your position, which is really destructive. It's like the the guy at Apple who was working on the podcast app. He had like Giants tickets that day. And he's like, you know what? I got to go, man. (laughs) Because I don't know. To me, that one, like as soon as I realized that was the behavior in CarPlay, I'm like, okay, these guys are not paying attention to this app. And I just went immediately back to Overcast. But anyway, that's not uh, why we're here. We we wanted to talk to you about just kind of getting into what you're doing these days. And we will get to Overcast a little bit. But it's been so long um, what hardware are you driving these days? It changes so frequently. So we should say, what hardware are you driving today as we record uh, this? This week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, to be fair, like my laptop setup changes often, but my desktop really doesn't. I, I tend to buy like a really nice desktop and then use it for, you know, two to five years, depending on, you know, what's out and what I need. Um, so, well, let's be honest, two to four years. And and for those out there, Marco is not only a podcaster, he's also a developer. And I think is Tiff still a semi professional photographer? Yeah, she's and and now she's doing a whole bunch of podcasts, too. Uh, so there's we have a whole like podcast multimedia family going on now. Yeah, so they they put a lot of uh, they put a lot of um, effort or they they use a lot of ones and zeros on their computers. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's a good good approximation yeah yeah so basically i uh right now i'm using an imac pro uh before that uh you know before that, that that only came out maybe four months ago before that i was using a 2014 retina 5k imac um which you know came out you know four years before that so or i guess three years before that uh so yeah maybe two to three years is more accurate and your imac pro you didn't go with the stock configuration most people who are buying the imac pro in our world are, are buying the base model maybe they're they're tweaking the ram a little here or there but but you went with the with a midline configuration as i remember is that is that correct or am i misremembering that's correct yeah the i, I went with 10 core um base for the other things and then uh four terabyte on the ssd which is extravagant but it's because this machine is only mine until the Mac Pro comes out. Then I will get that, and this machine will become Tiff's, and she needs tons of fast storage on her computer. Yeah, for for the photography, exactly, and 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 other stuff too. So so we have like you know her computer has this crazy setup with like an external Thunderbolt box full of SSDs and RAID zero, and it's a terrible setup, and it's not it's you know it's very fragile and very hacky. So we're looking to consolidate that into something internal. So there we are. Well, one of the really nice things about the iMac Pro is that Apple has that um, that that's that ARM chip. I want to call it was it the T two? What's the name of that's that? That's right. Yep, yeah, T two. But as I understand, it's got the disk controller built right into the this ARM subprocessor, which, if you read the uh, the benchmarks, makes disk access pretty pretty damn fast. Well, also, you know, here I was just telling you that, that that using multiple SSDs in RAID 0 was a pile of hacks, but that's actually what it's doing. Uh, every iMac Pro has two SSD modules in it, and it's running them in parallel. So you get really fast speeds on them because they're sharing the workload. So everything you do with the iMac Pro is actually reading and writing from two SSD modules. So your iMac Pro has two two terabyte SSDs in it that are RAID formatted or RAID configured to be four terabytes of readable space? effectively yeah i mean we don't we don't see the level of that like like to the os if you if you plug in any other two discs you know any other way it'll show up as two different volumes and then you can make it software raid 
with the iMac Pro, th- that level is not exposed to the OS. The iMac Pro sees it from the software level as one big four terabyte disk. But the way it is ac- actually implemented is every iMac Pro configuration has two SSD modules just of whatever size is half the advertised size, and it runs them in parallel for speed. And that's happening on the T2, which is kind of one of the advantages of having this this embedded ARM processor, among other things. It's, you know, it, I was in the Apple store looking at one the other day. I've got the original 27-inch iMac, and when they announced it, I got all proud about how I'll never need one of those. Boy, I don't know. I'm, and you I've, started thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's on my mind now because it, it really, when when you look at it, although I don't think I'd need four terabytes of storage, I can understand why you would do it because uh, to get fast SSD storage externally, it's probably not that much less expensive than just putting it inside, which is getting the advantage of the T2. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can get external SSDs for less. Like the um, usually the the, the pick that, that I recommend and that I've used before is the Samsung T series of external USB three um, SSD little little drives. They're they're smaller than external hard drives that ever were. They're they're about maybe a third the size of like a, a laptop size hard drive. Um, so they're, they're these nice little ones. They're up to the Samsung T five now. Every year or two, that number goes up. Uh, but right now, it's the T5 series. And I believe off the top of my head, I think a two terabyte one is like $1,500 or $1,000, something like that. So it's not cheap, uh, but it's it's more for Actually, that might even be the four terabyte. It's, it's more affordable than you know it was a year ago. And the prices are always coming down. And so if you, if you don't, if you need more storage than what your computer has, but you don't need like 10 terabytes, you know, like, <laughs> like if you're in like, Regular disks, like the, what would go in like a NAS, you know, three and a half inch hard drives, you can get those up to, t- up to 10 terabytes for not that much money now. But if you don't need that much space, if you just need like another terabyte or two from what you have, those external SSDs are great because they're small, they're self-powered right from the bus, so you don't need like a separate AC adapter or anything, and they're really fast. Uh, USB 3 is fast enough for most types of use, um, so they're, they're great. So that I was that was one of my questions is those things will work okay over a USB three cable. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. And and they come with one too. But yeah, it's it's totally fine. I, I've I, I have a smaller one that I've used before. Um I had which I think is like the T three or T four line. It's it's not the current one, but uh those come highly recommended from lots of people and, and they're they're great. The only reason you would need more speed than that is if you're doing really serious, like high bandwidth work that would require you to use the internal SSD's speed. Um, so if you're doing anything that's like very heavily disk based, maybe video work, but even probably then you're probably limited by GPU and CPU. Um, but, you know, mo- for the most part, you're fine using USB storage if you have to. Yeah, I'm just looking uh, on Amazon. The T5 with two terabytes is 700 bucks. Well, oh, yeah, so that's great. Yeah, they, they just continue to go down. And that's great. And it is nice because SSD for such a long time was a great technology that was too small for most people. I mean, remember the original uh, the original MacBook Air? I think it was sixty four gigabytes was the biggest SSD. I might be wrong. It was the I mean, only option. Yeah, it's you could you could have either either the eighty gigabyte iPod hard drive, which I had, which was painfully slow. It made it made the whole machine incredibly hard to use. You wanted um, to get out and like crank it with a wheel before you started. <laughs> yeah, like rebooting it took like ten minutes. It was it was bad. Um, and then and then you could speed it up, although not by that much because SSDs were very new then and they actually weren't that much faster. Um, but you could speed it up by getting by by paying, I think it was fifteen hundred dollars more to to change your 80 gig iPod hard drive into a 64 gig SSD. 
<laughs> but but someone buying a brand new iMac Pro is going to get a one terabyte SSD out of the box, or and I I would assume that I haven't got the numbers right in front of me, but you, if you just want to get the regular iMac, you can get up to one terabyte storage without completely breaking the bank you would have a few years ago. It's 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 a doable thing now to skip the whole Fusion Drive, which I was never really a big fan of, to be honest with you. Yeah, Fusion Drive is a fine setup if you really can't afford better. It's it's not great. It's not the same as an SSD, but it's fine. Uh, but if you can't afford to go all SSD, it is significantly better, significantly faster, significantly simpler, runs cooler, runs quieter, way more reliable. So if you can go full SSD, I highly recommend it. Yeah, just checking out the specs page on the 5K iMac, the higher-end one, if, if you want to upgrade from the 2-terabyte Fusion Drive, which is the stock option, to an SSD, it's you know additional two hundred bucks to go with a five twelve SSD, additional six hundred bucks to go with a one terabyte, or an additional fourteen hundred bucks to go with a two terabyte. So it's it's still expensive. I mean, at a minimum, I would I would go with the five twelve SSD. So you're you're still getting you know um, uh, upgrade charge to do that, but it's not horrible. I've got a I've got a hybrid car, and I, I know that you would hate that because I know you're a car guy. And but to me, it just gets me there. But the um, but in a lot of ways, it's like the Fusion Drive. It's like the worst of everything. It's like it's got <laughs> batteries that can die, but it also has a carburetor and a, and all the other nonsense that the uh, internal combustion engine has. So I've got two points of failure with my car. Um, <laughs> And, and that's, uh, but the fusion drive is going away and, and hopefully Apple, well, I sure wish Apple would just get rid of spinning discs entirely, but that's, a, that's another conversation probably. Um, the, um, but getting back to this iMac Pro, uh, in addition to having this big old hard drive in there, uh, you've got, what'd you do with the processor? I did 10 core, so it's one step up from the base. The, the base is 8 core. Um, I, I read you know, some stuff Apple was saying about like developers are basically optimized at 10 core for, for typical developer workflows. Um, so I, I went with that. Yeah, and, and that's, once again, that's the, it seems to be the sweet spot for a lot of people. Um, it, it, it does a much better job of multi-core than 8. I understand even more, not just because of the two cores, that it's actually tuned better for multi-core. Yeah, I mean, and the good thing is, like, there in in the previous generation Mac Pros, there was a pretty big penalty as you increase the core count, the clock speed per core would go down pretty sharply. And with the new ones, that penalty is much smaller. And the way Turbo Boost now works on them, when you're giving it a single core workload, which is a lot of stuff still, um, you're actually with the newer ones getting about the same performance no matter how many cores you have. So, like, as you go from eight to ten to fourteen to eighteen cores single threaded performance stays about the same which is great cuz that's that's new only in this generation of Xeons that has not that's not has not been the case before didn't Intel like describe these as like the SUV class of processors or something like that at one point yeah who knows i mean the you know, the, the important thing for us is that like it's now like you know with the previous Mac Pro like you couldn't if you just bought the best one it was actually worse in some ways because of that single threaded penalty with the higher core things now Anything you buy is going to be the best single threaded stuff. And then it's just how much parallel capacity do you need? This was actually like the, the, this iMac Pro. One of the reasons it's such a great machine. And if, if I hadn't said it that yet, it's an amazing machine. I love the iMac Pro. And if this was the only Mac Pro we ever got again, I'd be fine. Uh, I, I still want the tower. But if the, if the tower was not going to exist anymore and this was it, I'd be totally fine. 
Um, but I, okay, I, I'm not so sure I believe you on that, but I want to come back to that in a minute. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> but, but I, mean, I, keep on, I have been using an iMac for the last four years. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So, the, uh, uh, now, now, you know, our audience is is weird because we got people who are like, is that one guy who's a dentist who just loves Macs, all the way up to people who make, um, you know, uh, professional video on their Macs. But I think for a lot of people listening, there's a good, there's a question in their mind is like, where do they go between a, an iMac or an iMac Pro? I mean, when does the multi-core stuff really count for people? And, you know, what's your take on that? The best advice I can give is to basically make your performance needs not a guessing game anymore. Measure them. And how I measure them is I use an app by Bjango Software, this wonderful group of Australian geniuses, um, called iStat Menus. You, I, I don't know if you mentioned it before. You probably have in 430 episodes. Yeah, it's a great app. <laughs> I'm running it right now. I, I always run iStat Menus. And always it's, and so what it does, for anybody unfamiliar, is that it has it basically lets you put in your max menu bar little like performance graphs and indicators to show you things like whether the CPU is getting hit really hard, uh, whether you're like using the network or using disk activity or whatever else, you, there's now more advanced stuff like that. I now have a weather widget and, and a a nicer battery widget on my laptop than the one Apple ships um, that actually tells you the time remaining like Apple used to before they wanted to make their battery life more complicated. So, <laughs> so iSet Menus is great for lots of reasons and I highly suggest that everybody use it, but because I'm always running it and, and I, I have the CPU cores split out into multiple graphs, so I have 10 little graphs running across the top. And I've been running iStat menus like this for, geez, probably a decade. And so I always, like, I have this indicator. Because, you know, back in, you know, in the 90s, like when I, when I was growing up with computers, uh, you could tell the computer was working really hard because you could hear the hard drive grinding away. And you could see the hard drive light blinking on the front. And you could see, like, oh, my God, I'm really hitting the hard drive hard. You could, you could see why it was being slow in a lot of cases. You could even feel it with your fingers. It would like translate through the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, you feel the vibrations, right? And and today with today's computers, when when something is slow, at best you might hear the fan spin up, but that might be your only indicator that the hardware is working hard. Besides, just things are taking a long time. So what's great about iStat menus and the way I split out the CPU graph is I can just tell at a glance if I'm driving it hard. I can see right there in the menu bar whether I'm driving it hard, like whether my CPU is working all the way. Or whether like something else is being bottleneck, maybe it's waiting for something to download, or maybe it's hitting the disk really hard. Although with SSDs, that doesn't happen that much anymore, thank goodness. Uh, and so, and then I can also see by having those separate CPU graphs, I can also see w- what tasks I do are actually using all my CPU cores, or which ones are just using one. And because of that, that lets me make better buying decisions about what hardware I buy and what I actually need. So that's what I would suggest for anybody who's like, you know, trying to decide, like, do you, do you need the iMac Pro? I mean, first of all, if you think you might need it and you have $5,000, just get it. It's amazing. But, but if, you, if you want a more nuanced approach to it or a more, you know, efficient approach to buying hardware, um, you know, first of all, the regular iMac is great, too. That's, I mean, I, literally, I just used one for three years before this, and it was great, um, especially the 5K. Man, it's so good. But, uh, but you know. It ruins you. It really does. But like actually, you know, run iStat menus for a while and watch as you do your work, watch which things that you do and how often you actually see like all of your CPU cores being used. And if it isn't that often or if it's just like for a second and then it goes back down and most of the things you do either aren't like really hitting the CPU hard at all 
or are only hitting one core, then you probably don't need a machine that is designed for lots of parallel cores like this. You could probably be totally fine with a regular iMac. Um, but if, if, on the other hand, you're doing stuff like video encoding or uh, Xcode compilation with Swift, where you're seeing like all the cores being maxed out for at least a few seconds, if not more, then you could probably benefit for something that has like eight or ten cores. Yeah, and the multi-core thing is always a mystery to people. That's a great, it's a great way to see it. I uh, I always put uh, Bajango behind my iStat menus behind Bartender usually because it's so much data up there, it becomes distracting. But, well, put uh, less data in there. Yeah, well, no, or but it's not a big deal. I use it to me. It's like when all of a sudden it feels funny, like it, things are going slow. I'll, I can just open up a bartender and see what's going on. But or if I'm actively monitoring something where I'm aware of a problem, then I will put it back on the main menu. But but if you're thinking about upgrading, that's a great idea. Just put it on your main menu bar and keep an eye on those graphs and see how you're doing. So you can be yeah. selective with what you put in in iStat menus. So I've got in my my main menu bar, I've got CPU, I've got network activity because I like to see what's going on in my network, and I've replaced my clock widget with the iStat menus clock because it gives you more information and I forget half the time that the clock is actually a better clock. I I actually use um Oh gosh, when I, I use the battery thing for um for my battery widget. Fruit juice. Fruit juice, yes, thank you. And so I I don't use that one. But then you can hide other ones behind a, a bartender. But then they also have a combined mode so that you can, you know, if you don't want to see a whole bunch of stuff in, in your menu bar, that you can combine a whole bunch of, of the iStat menu widgets in there. And like right now as we're talking here, I don't know. Oh, I think a backup just kicked off. So my my processor kicked up to it's hovering right about forty percent right now. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Away. Away is a team of thinkers, seekers, and designers. That's why they make smart, premium suitcases, so your luggage doesn't cost more than your plane ticket. And what do you need most while you're traveling? More battery. When you buy an Away suitcase, you can charge all of your devices while you travel. Both sizes of their carry-on features USB ports with a battery large enough to charge your phone five times from a single charge. You can even share your battery with a friend or a stranger at the airport and make a new friend. I've done that. Go to awaytravel.com slash MPU now and browse Away's suitcases featuring premium German polycarbonate, which is unrivaled in strength and impact resistance and still lightweight. You can choose from over 10 colors and five sizes. They have the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, the large, or the kids carry-on for smaller travelers among us. And they cut out the middleman so you can get first-class luggage at coach prices. Away suitcases have a patent-pending compression system, which is great if you're an overpacker, along with four 360-degree spinner wheels. Away's carry-ons are compliant with all major U.S. airlines while still maximizing the amount you can pack, with TSA combination locks built right in. They also feature a removable, washable laundry bag, too, so you can separate your clean clothes from your worn ones while you're on your trip. When you get home, you just pull out your laundry bag and do your laundry. It's such a great little addition. Several years ago, I moved from my big heavy carry-on to an away suitcase, and I love it. Travel is so much easier now with my away suitcase. It's lighter, and those four rotating wheels make getting it through an airport super easy. The Away suitcases have multiplied in my house. Now almost everybody has one. I even just bought the medium size Away uh, recently for a big trip I have coming up. Right now they have a Star Wars promotion, so of course I got Tatooine Orange. 
I also really like how easy this luggage is to pack. They've got separators when you open the suitcase, so you can get everything in there really nice and tight. And they also have a 100-day trial with no questions asked return policy. So get one and try it for your next trip. I bet you'll love it. With free shipping on any order within the lower 48 states in the U.S., you really can't go wrong. So travel smarter with the suitcase that charges your phone. To find out more about Away, go to awaytravel.com slash MPU. And if you use the offer code MPU at checkout, you get $20 off any of their suitcases. That discount even works on the limited edition Star Wars suitcases. So get over there now. Once again, that's awaytravel.com slash MPU for $20 off some great luggage. So, Marco, we've talked about your new uh, iMac Pro, and that's that's been your your main uh, desktop for a while. But you tend to kind of be going through things with uh, with laptops that we can't quite can't quite settle on what we're doing there. Yeah, um, I, I think it's partly because I'm just you know I, I like new shiny things, and partly because I have a lot of things about the current generation of laptops that just doesn't work well for me. Um, so. I started out, you know, a long time ago, I got a 2012 uh, Retina MacBook Pro when that first came out. Um, eventually, I upgraded to a 2014 model um, when the 2012 started having some issues. And, I and oh, let me tell you, never buy a laptop with the 256 gigabyte base SSD. That was like, basically, I fought that for two years, constantly running out of space before I had, I had a screen issue. I'm like, all right, fine, I'll just replace it and, you know, give it to somebody in the family who could use it and got, got myself a nice new 2014 model. And these are 15 inch, uh, if I didn't say already. Um, I I have over the course of my time with Apple, which has been since 2004, I have I have tried lots of 15 inch and some 13 inch models, including the 13 inch MacBook Air. Uh, two of them actually, the first one and then the, the 2010 one that came out that was way better. <laughs> so um, I, I've tried, you know, I, I've tried a lot of different sizes, or I, I tried a lot of different of those, and uh, I'm totally happy with either a 13 or a 15, honestly. Um, depending on, you know, my, my needs at that time in my life is how I decide more often than not, I'm on the 15 inch side, just because I rarely regret getting the 15, but I sometimes regret getting the 13. Uh, so just cause like the 15, like it, I know that like I have the biggest screen I can get in, in an Apple laptop. I have the most performance I can get like, you know, and, and the stock stuff on the 15 tends to be just higher and better. And you work from home most days, so you, you're not carrying it back and forth to work every day. That's true. Although for years I did carry it back to work, <laughs> back and forth every day, and including times where I was walking most of that way or all that way. And and you know the, the reality is like if you're walking to work carrying a backpack uh, or or a messenger bag with a computer in it, I challenge you. This is another thing. Like measure before you judge. Like people make a big deal out of like, man, I, I got to stop carrying this giant 15 inch laptop and I got to switch to you know a MacBook Air or something. And it's like okay, that's that's about a two pound difference. Measure and see how much your bag weighs empty like without the laptop and just everything else you have in it that's not the laptop plus the bag itself you can probably save two pounds or close to it in other ways like do you really have to be carrying around like these all these different things you carry in your bag every single day um could you could your problem be solved by not carrying the power brick and buying another one for work and so that you have one that's it's always at work and you don't have to bring it anymore like there there are things like that that like people tend to to overestimate the value of how much their computer weighs without counting all the stuff around it and the value they're getting from having a nice computer so like if you know if you're if you're actually carrying 
only that computer around like by itself and that extra pound or two really matters to you that's a, that's another story I, but i would say i usually hear this complaint from able-bodied young people who carry giant bags that weigh 15 pounds and two separate liter bottles of water full <laughs> right exactly <laughs> <laughs> exactly so yeah. it's you know it's, it's kind of optimizing for the wrong thing um and and if you if you like a smaller machine and if you don't mind the the things you're giving up or the or the limits that it has fine that's that's totally fine um but but don't let the weight be the main reason you decide because for most people they're they're um not considering all the things around it uh so anyway so back to the back to the question <laughs> but now i i didn't you i i am not I'm not fully didn't you go back though to the older generation macbook is that what yeah, so, so basically yeah. what happened was, you know, so I had this 2014 model. It was fine. Like everyone else, I, you know, I was watching the Apple lineup in, you know, 2015 and 2016 and seeing, hmm, where the heck is the updates to the MacBook Pro? Like they, this, this design and these processors are, are fairly old because even the 2015 model is using processors from, I think, 2013 or something like that. So they're, they're you know, the guts were not new. And so... I was, you know, I was getting concerned and like, like many people, I was calling for Apple to please update the MacBook Pro. What's going on? Why is it taking so long? And in late 2016, they did. They gave us the touch bar generation and which is, as we speak, the current generation. Uh, there's, there was a minor update in 2017 that boosted performance, but that's about all it did. Um, and I really don't like this generation of laptops. I, I find, you know, superficially when you first use them, I find... I really don't like the touch bar. I think it's a total miss. Um, some people like it, but I think it's a, I think it's their minority. Uh, I, I, I think it was just, it was not successful in what it tried to do and it gave up too much to do it. Uh, so I don't like the touch bar. Um, and then the port situation is really rough on me. Uh, my, the first, first I got a 15 inch touch bar. It was, you know, it was fast. It was fine. Um, but I just really hated the, having it be only USB-C, I really hated losing my SD card slot. Um, I hated that one of my f- precious only four ports was taken up by the power adapter, so it was really only has three ports. Uh, and I really, really hated the keyboard. And I and the keyboard is controversial because a lot of people like the way it feels. Um, but all the previous keyboards were not controversial. It was just a keyboard that everyone was fine with. No one gave a second thought to the keyboard in the 2015 MacBook Pro. Like it, there were never, no one has ever written a single blog post about it. <laughs> it has never come up. It it was not. It was just fine. It's a keyboard. Like in the same way that nobody ever cares about like you know other like minor details like the keyboard management arm design on the power brick, which they also got rid of for apparently no reason. Um, so the it, the new generation, it took a bunch of steps backwards, and well, I, at first. I, I like- and on the keyboard, it's not even just the feel. It seems to me like, I mean, we don't have the full data. Apple does. But almost everybody that's into this knows somebody, at least, that's had to have a keyboard replaced. There's there's problems mechanically with those keyboards. Absolutely. They're, they seem to be far less reliable on average. They, they seem to uh, flake out or totally fail or have erratic behavior with seemingly with totally normal usage. And like I, you know, I'm pretty gentle on my laptops. I've never had a keyboard problem before this generation. I've been using laptops. I've been using Apple laptops for 14 years. I have never had a keyboard problem until 2016. And 
so I, I think there's and and you talk to a lot of people and you hear the exact same thing. So there's there's definitely something there. Um, again, we don't have the data. There was some weird thing on Apple Insider a few days ago, but it's, it's it's that was very small sample set and very weird kind of untrustworthy data. And that only measured people who actually take it in for service. And I think a lot of people haven't taken it in for service yet because taking your laptop in for service is incredibly disruptive, especially if it's your only computer. You well, know, I, I can tell you, we have the original, the, you know, the new MacBook. Yeah, the naming is also yeah, weird, the 2015 but, you know, MacBook. Yeah, yeah, the, the the new super thin MacBook. I used it for a while. My daughter uses it now, and it's now it's on its third keyboard, and and tw- <laughs> twice it's had the space bar just just you know crap out on us. And Apple was really cool about it, and they fixed it. And I think the second time it was out of Apple Care when they fixed it. But you know, it hasn't been. They haven't been difficult about it. But then I'm just looking at this computer saying. When is the keyboard going to fail again? And is this computer going to last as long as I'm used to a Mac lasting? Because, you know, at some point, it's not going to be uh, free to get that replaced. Exactly. So to me, like, that's a fatal problem. Like, I, I need my laptop to work. That's why they call it Pro. <laughs> and, and you know, I know it's just marketing. But ultimately, no matter how you feel about the reliability of these things, or I mean, sorry, about the feel of them, if the reliability is a real problem, then it's a bad design, period. Like, there's no if ands, or buts about it, no matter how you feel about the feel. Um, so anyway, so first I had a 15-inch, hated it, uh, got a 13-inch, figuring like, well, if I'm going to have this keyboard I don't like uh, and, and you know, all these limitations, I might as well at least get, like, some of, like, these size benefits because the new 15 is really not that much lighter or thinner than the old 15 it's it's a very small difference um so i figured well 13 inch you know i can downsize to the 13 inch uh it's you know it, my my mobile needs generally have lessened over the last few years so let me go into the 13 inch it'll be fine and i did and i, I got the macbook i call it the macbook escape it's the one that does not have the touch bar um but is still otherwise you know very similar to the new generation problem is it only has two ports total so of course when you plug something in it only really has one when, you, when it's plugged into the wall it really has one port um so that really i i brought it to wbc last year ran our live show off of it and everything and it was just it was a constant battle of dongles and hubs to make that computer useful to me on the road um and and this is this is all stuff i never had to do with my old 15 inch and then a little bit later through the summer uh i had very my needs totally changed i had this new situation arise where i needed a very powerful gpu so i sold that 13 inch to mike actually <laughs> and uh and got myself the new 50, the 2017 15 inch which had allegedly improved the keyboard and it did improve the like rattly sound of the keyboard they put these little rubber gaskets in and it kind of dampened the sound a little bit um but ultimately like it still had reliability problems so, like it, it, the keyboards don't seem to be meaningfully different in the 2017 generation for reliability and i also just i just hated it i just hated the computer i hated the keyboard i hated the ports i hated dongle hell you know you the USB-C ecosystem still has a lot of problems and just gaps in it there's still you know there aren't enough good peripherals there aren't enough stable multi-port hubs that just work and are consistent and everything is reliable on them so i just kept having problems so i, I just said you know what I'm just done with this whole generation. I went to on eBay and bought a lightly used 15 inch 2015 model. And that's what I'm using to this day. I bought it probably a few months back now or more than that. And I'm very happy with it. It, it, I wrote this whole blog post about how much I love it. It's a really great computer. And 
in in the efforts of you know like back back in 2015 when we were all like calling for apple to finally upgrade them please this model is so old you know it was easy to look at what we had and not realize how good we had things <laughs> because we assumed we assumed that every upgrade or that, that every new version would be more positive it'd be a total upgrade like all in but this this generation i really don't think was a, a clear like net upgrade win and so i went back to the 2015 and all of my laptop anxiety disappeared it works it works reliably the keyboard is totally forgettable it's never a problem <laughs> it just works and it has all the ports i need all the time i don't i don't carry any dongles anymore when i travel i bring just the macbook pro it's power adapter and an iphone cable that's it <laughs> it's awesome well, i i think you know it, it's funny because we've been making the show since 2009 and never until this current generation did we ever have people writing in talking about how much they didn't like their new macbook pro i mean it's just never been a thing katie's got one she has troubles with it but we also get emails from people swearing by it and talking about how the touch bar helps them because they've never been good keyboard combination people and, i mean there, there are a group of people that like these computers it's not you know universal Although I would say that the one thing that objectively, you know, it bothers me about it is these reports of unreliable keyboards, my own experiences and so many others. Uh, and that is something that really can't that that's just not something I'm used to associating with an Apple product, especially a $2,000 Apple product. Yeah. And, and, you know, their their silence on this matter has been deafening. Um, I the only reason I think they haven't done or said anything about it is that there is nothing to replace it yet. My my theory is that this summer, I think they're probably going to give us new laptops. I th- probably some kind of design tweak to improve or replace this keyboard. Um, and then I think they will probably quietly announce a repair extension program for these keyboards because they really need one. It, they they are failing at way too high of a rate. This is you know similar to how previous generations of MacBook Pro, they would have like GPU failures. That, and you know, they would cut big problems. A lot of people would, would have to unnecessarily repair them like way too early with no abuse or anything. Some people would threaten class action lawsuits and eventually Apple would announce some kind of extended repair program that, okay, we'll actually repair this out of warranty for an extra you know, three years or whatever. That's what's, I, what I hope is going to happen here. And, and I think what's most likely, I think there's going to be some kind of keyboard repair extension program for all the 2015 forward MacBooks and all the 2016 forward MacBook Pros. And uh, and then hopefully this summer's updates, which I assume will happen, uh, will will change the keyboard in some way to make these problems a thing of the past. I really, really hope that's what's going to happen. I, I think we're probably going to see some kind of fix to the keyboard. It, it seems pretty clear that that is an issue. I don't think Apple's going to call it a fix because they very rarely say, oh, yeah, we admit we have a problem. It's just it's just going to be an improved keyboard. We've improved the keyboard design. And I think we're, we're yet to see what's going to happen with the touch bar. Is Apple going to double down with it or is it just going to quietly disappear? But I, I don't think we're going to go back in time, we're, we're not going to see USA, USB-A ports. We're not going to see Apple go back to um, a, a time with more or different ports because Apple really never has backtracked. Once they've gone down this path, they, they stick to the path that they've gone to. Uh, you know, we're, I don't think we're going to see another Mac that, that has a significant number of ports on it. I mean, uh, do you think I'm wrong or do you think we're going to see an HDMI port on a Mac or do you think we're going to get an SD card slot back or um, I just can't see that day coming where we're not going to foreseeable future be in Dongletown. 
So I, I think there's there's a few glimmers of hope here. First is the iMac Pro, which was designed and came out after these laptops. And it has four USB-C ports in the back and also four regular USB-A ports and, and an SD card slot and, not in, and a really good SD card slot at that. Um, so it had, like the, the iMac Pro, Apple recognized that pros need a lot of ports and some of the old ones and some of the new ones. So there is some recent precedent and, and you can also look back like there, there was precedent in history where they did go back. Not many of these precedents, uh, but one instance was they released a, um, a, an aluminum unibody MacBook pro 13 inch that they, they, they dropped the firewire port on it and it, and it, and it, people revolted. Everyone's like, we still need firewire. And so the next generation, they re added it back on. And that that's one minor computer from history that nobody remembers, but it does happen. So when you look at, you know, and it does seem also like Apple was caught by surprise by how many pro users were dissatisfied right from the start with the 2016 MacBook Pro. So I think there is some possibility that they are now listening more to what people have complained about about this. Uh, and the iMac Pro suggests, you know, that they are not above leaving on, quote, legacy ports when there's room or if, you know, for markets that need them on the high end or whatever else. So I don't know what's going to happen. The, a USB-A port won't fit on the side of any of these laptops. It's too, the laptops are too thin. Um, so if they are going to use USB-A ports, they're going to have to make them thicker. They might have to make them thicker anyway just to fit a, a, a different keyboard mechanism in there. We'll see how that goes. Um, but Ultimately, I think we're probably not going to see more ports. We might see the return of the SD card slot. Even that, I think, is a maybe and probably only on a 15-inch. But one option I thought of the other day that, that I'm, I haven't talked about anywhere yet, but I'm not sure if this is realistic or not, but look at what they did with the iMac Pro. They had a line that was popular, that, that was you know very much mainstream and semi-pro, which is the iMac 5K, and they made an even better version of it to get even higher market. Now, with 2016 and 2017 MacBook Pros, one of the big complaints is that there's a, still a 16 gig RAM ceiling. For a lot of pros, they need 32. And there's like the difference between low power and non-low power RAM and all this weird stuff. Basically, to, make, to, make, to give them 32 gigs of RAM, they need to use a higher class of it, which uses more power. There's also people like me complaining about not enough ports, not enough SD card readers, uh, you, know, it, you know, having problems with the keyboard. So I don't think it's totally out of the question that maybe one way out of this is for them to make another 15-inch that sits above the current one in the lineup and is a little bit thicker and has, you know, a little bit bigger battery, has that, you know, the, the different kind of RAM so you can make a 32 gig uh, if, if you need to. And, you know, maybe it uses two SSD modules like the iMac Pro in parallel with a T2 chip. Who knows? Something like that. Like, there's lots of those things they could do. And maybe they make this a separate model so that, they can address those high-end desires without making their mainstream models thicker or heavier. And, with, and it kind of gives them a way to save face. The, the iMac Pro S. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, my gosh. And, and MacBook how, Pro SE. How, how many <laughs> lines are we going to have? We're going to have the MacBook. We're going to have the MacBook Air. We're going to have the MacBook Pro. We're going to have the 13-inch. We're going to have the touch bar, the non-touch bar, the duh, 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 duh. Well, they they could use like a, a like if they put a, a beefier graphics card, it would have to get thicker for heat anyway. So, 
I mean, they could use that as an excuse to to make it thicker, but it's so hard for Apple once they make it smaller to, to make it bigger again. You know, it's like it's such an unusual thing for them to do. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I, I think what, what ultimately needs to happen is, you know, Apple found with the iMac line that like, you know, one size doesn't fit all with the laptops. Apple tried with this 2016 generation. They tried to make the exact same trade-offs for everybody, for the entire line. The entire line is ultra-thin and light, only has USB-C, and ha- and gives up all the legacy. Right? That, that's the whole, and, and has this keyboard that is controversial. And not, not to mention reliability issues, but we'll, we'll stick with controversy for now. That, I think, was the wrong move because for anybody who doesn't like the direction they took, there is no alternative model for them to take. Unless they buy the old one like I did. But like they're like they shouldn't apply the exact same trade-off to their entire lineup. A keyboard that is super thin and flat, that has kind of a rough typing feel and that a lot of like typists don't like, but that can be super thin and flat, is a totally normal, acceptable choice for something like the 12-inch MacBook, where you need it to be as thin and light as possible. That's the whole point of that model. But something like a 13-inch or a 15-inch MacBook Pro you don't necessarily like not every buyer needs that in in those and people if given the choice might make different trade-offs for some of the different models so i think what i hope to see from apple is just a little more diversity in the choices they make across their entire lineup like this if you're going to insist on having one keyboard and one set of trade-offs for the entire line it better be a really widely agreeable keyboard and a really widely useful set of trade-offs and if you're going to if you want to do things that are more aggressive you shouldn't apply them unilaterally to the entire line at once there should be either transitions on other models or there should be different needs for different size models that i think is the way forward here yeah we're recording this a few weeks before WWDC and one of the big things going around is everybody's wondering what are they going to talk about because a lot of the rumored stuff seems to be not on the table for this year Maybe, you know, it's wishful thinking, but maybe we'll see new MacBooks in a couple of weeks. Who knows? I, I hope so. And I think it's, I don't think it's that uh, unlikely. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Squarespace. Head over to squarespace.com slash MPU and use code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your idea. You can start with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and a whole lot more. Whether you want to create an online store, a portfolio, a blog, a website for your organization, or yourself, Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. You don't have to install anything. You don't have to worry about a database or a backend. There's no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about all that stuff. You've got enough on your plate. Squarespace just has you covered. And they have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. First thing they do is they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And they have all of those award-winning Squarespace templates that are beautifully designed to let you show off your great ideas. And just because you start with a Squarespace template, you don't have to worry. Your website isn't going to look like everyone else's. They are infinitely customizable. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start your free trial with no credit card required by going over to squarespace.com slash MPU. In fact, I use a Squarespace website for my website, and I've probably at this point created about a dozen different websites for various organizations, all using Squarespace. I love the fact that I don't have to be a web administrator. I just set it up 
I design it. It's easy. And then I can hand it off to somebody. There's nothing to fuss with. When you decide to sign up, you can use code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and show your support for Mac power users. So head on over to squarespace.com slash MPU. Start your free trial now. See how far you can get. You'll probably complete your website during that time. And when you're ready to buy, use code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks, Squarespace, for your kind support of this show. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So, Marco, when you were on the show in episode 99, I don't know, maybe Overcast was a was a thought, but it wasn't a reality. It wasn't something that we, we even talked about on the, the last episode. Uh, so since then, Overcast is now a reality, and we've got a brand new version of Overcast. It's been through a couple of different iterations. Um, and then we've also got your big privacy update who, that has come out. So a, a lot to talk about with regards to that. Um, I know that Overcast is the most popular uh, podcast player for people who download this episode or this uh, podcast. So um, I know that a lot of people who listen to this show are generally familiar with with Overcast. So I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, but but generally, how has uh, life as a podcast developer or podcast app developer been treating you? I absolutely love it. I love every minute of it. You know, what's what's great about it is that when I started working on it, I didn't really know if it could actually be a business or not. I, I started working on it in like ah, 2013 or so. And it, it was really a question in my mind, like, will podcasting continue to get bigger? Will it be big enough that I can like actually make this app? Cause back then it was, it was still, you know, a fairly like narrow special interest that most people didn't know what podcasts were in, in 2012 and 2013. And, and most people didn't listen to podcasts back then. Um, and I wanted to work on it anyway because I loved podcasts and I was so just inspired by how good the world of podcasting was. And I was coming from the world of web publishing and web articles from Instapaper where I really, that world was starting to take a lot of turns in directions I really didn't like. And, and that just seemed, you know, like a lot of the weird ad stuff was really ramping up back then. Uh, a lot of like reader hostile behavior was just getting worse and worse a lot of sites were switching to like, you know, all JavaScript generated layouts and things that were making it hard to even parse their pages or show reading modes. And I just, I just wanted to get out of that business. Um, and, and I don't even use it anymore. Like I don't, I don't even read much from the web anymore uh, because that whole world took a turn. I didn't like that just rubbed me the wrong way in a lot of different ways. And the podcasting world just seems like a breath of fresh air by comparison. It's so much nicer. It, it is, it is seemingly more stable. It's on more stable footing. Um, the content I think is, is generally better and more interesting much of the time. Um, and I, I just enjoy it more both as a producer and as a listener of the content and also as the app developer. So the world of podcasting is great and I love it. And then what's nice about the app is that, you know, after a couple years of flailing around and trying to find a business model that, that was sustainable, that was, that also brought in enough, enough money to survive well, um, I finally found that model like a year ago. So now it's, you know, it's as you, as you know, it's a combination of uh, ads for podcasts, which is a, a major differentiator there and a optional yearly subscription to remove the ads and add a couple of minor features. Uh, so that now pays the bills very well. It's doing fine. The, you know, the direction of everything is like slowly climbing up instead of slowly climbing down <laughs> or quickly climbing down as many of them did. 
Um, and it's so, and, and it's a solution that I think works for all the parties involved really well. Like because there are ads for podcasts, the listeners don't mind them very much. Many of them actually leave them on after they buy the subscription. Cause you you're, you're allowed to like leave them on if you want to. Many people leave them on because they say it helps them find new podcasts or they're interested in them or they don't mind them. And so, and then the podcasters finally have a way that they can pay for advertisement for their show somewhere, which doesn't exist anywhere else uh, really, except for like, you know, Facebook and Google, but like it doesn't exist in any of their players and your podcast players. Um, and so it works for podcasters. It works for listeners and it works for me. And so it, it's a great setup. I'm very, very happy with it. And uh, it seems stable. Well, one of the reasons, and I don't like to, we usually don't podcast about podcasting too much, but how can we resist today, right? Uh, but the uh, on the business side, when when Katie and I first started the show and back when you were getting interested in it, uh, podcasting really was this gem of a secret that most of big media didn't realize even existed. But that's changing, you know, just like uh, the blog advertising model kind of blew up and the analytics got completely insane. There is pushing going on in podcasting now to try and do some things that, that I don't really believe in. And I'm really happy that there are developers like you making apps that are going to resist that because I think that as podcasters, we all need to stand up to, you know, to let our audiences enjoy the shows without us doing all sorts of creepy data things to them. And uh, that's a big part of it for me. And I really like the way you did that, that recent update. Um, so we should probably talk about that a little bit. Sure. I mean, yeah, so basically they, the, the update I just did, um, I called it the, the privacy update. It was 4.2. And it was, you know, there were not a lot of new features. In fact, there was, I think, none or one. I forget, but, you know, almost no new features for users. But it was an update aimed at reducing the number of email addresses that I have on my servers and making it harder for wet, for podcast advertisers to track your behavior in ways that I didn't think were above board, mainly tracking pixels. Uh, so basically, you know, I, I think you summarized it well. Podcasting used to be this wonderful, like, green field where we were all having a good time and the big money people didn't really know about it. Now big money came in and they are trying to turn podcasting into the web in terms of data collection, user tracking, being able to, like, you know, micro-optimize everything, all the content, uh, possibly algorithmically generate content, which sounds like just horrible to me <laughs> to algorithmically generate podcasts with robots to wait. That's to, not what uh, we're doing right now. <laughs> so bleep blop. Work. Yeah. Right. So, that, you know, there's, there's this push from, you know, from, from big interest in podcasting uh, to, to move more towards the model the web has where they can, you know, on the web, you visit a web page with JavaScript in your browser and, they can run whatever code they want to. They can track whatever information about you they want to. And believe me, they do. They really, really do. I mean, all you have to do to see how bad things are on the web is install some kind of tracking blocking uh, plugin that can tell you the number of things it blocks when you visit a page. <laughs> and then like go to any three. popular yep. site. Yeah, go yeah. to any popular site and see how it's like, you know, 40 things were blocked on this page. And it's all things you've never heard of that are various, you know, ad tracking companies and behavioral tracking things that just do creepy stuff with your data. Yeah. Uh, it it so, lights up your, your Mac like a pachinko machine. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, they, they want to bring that world to podcasting because they can make more money that way. And, and they, and some of them, some of them think they're doing it for good reasons. Some of them think they need quote, need this data 
to you know make better content decisions about you know do we arrange the show with the intro first or do we put something before the intro and if they can measure how many people skip the intro then they can you know it's it, that's the kind of stuff they want to do but like all that comes at a, at a pretty big cost to privacy and to long-term health and quality as we see from the web like the web had to die for podcasting to be as good as it is basically like it had to show us what happens if we if we let that happen to a medium and certain certain media uh that's already you know the the game's already over like video there is no online video there's only youtube and youtube has all that stuff already so video's lost like the battle is lost it's over video is full of data and tracking too and it's all controlled by one big company blogging is really struggling right now uh most people don't read blogs anymore if they ever did most of them now are getting all their news and browsing and reading done in facebook and maybe twitter uh, and so everything's controlled by them and that's terrible too podcasting is this wonderful open thing that is it's what blogs always were and blogs still are this way they're just a lot fewer of them and fewer people reading them but they still work this way but you know blogs have kind of been marginalized podcasting is is as big as it is today while still working the way blogs always did which is you can publish on your own site that you own that you host on your domain on your server and you can publish an rss feed and any player can play it and it's totally open and decentralized there is no gatekeeper part of the reason i started on overcast is because that can only hold true as long as the market of client apps is diverse if any one app gets too powerful they can start dictating terms to lock things down for themselves. Spotify is currently doing this, and it actually has me a little bit concerned. Um, I, I don't think they're going to ever have enough market share to really cause major damage, but they certainly already have enough to cause minor damage. Um, so, you know, there's there's some efforts for that. Um, Apple certainly could cause damage if they wanted to, but they've been they've been pretty benevolent about uh, their stewardship of their market share in podcasting. So, I think we're probably safe there because they've been you know, pretty good for like 10 years about it. So that's probably fine. But I, you know, the more diversity we can get in the client app ecosystem, the better. So I don't want Overcast to have 50% market share. I want lots of apps to all be sharing 50% market share because then none of us would ever have the power to say, you know what, if you want to be playable in Overcast, you now have to comply with what I say. And I'm going to dictate terms and you're going to have to give me rights for your content, sign up with me, maybe pay for placement or pay for royalties or something, you know, who knows what in order to even be playable at all on my player. That's what you can do when you have a lot of market share. And I never, I don't want podcasting to get to that point because I see what happens like, you know, as I said, Facebook controls online text, YouTube controls online video. Right now, nobody controls online podcasting and I want to keep it that way as much as I possibly can. Well, well, what really impressed me about your your privacy release is, you know, as much as we like to poke fun at the the fruit company for making laptops with creaky keyboards, uh, they have always been at Apple pretty committed to privacy, and and it is a, I believe it is truly is a corporate um, uh, priority to not have user data. I mean, and this is way before all the GDPR stuff going down now. I mean, I, I think Apple, when they get a subpoena, ideally they would like to be able to tell someone we don't have any way to get any of this stuff. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and, but you're the first small developer that I'm aware of. And I'm sure there's others. I just, you're the first one that came on my radar that says, I'm trying to do that with my app. You know, there's no reason that, just because you want to listen to podcasts and sync data that I need to know anything about you, you know, 
why should why should Marco know which podcast you listen to? And you've anonymized the process. And I think that's something that we haven't heard much from the independent developer community. And I, I hope that it you start something with that. I hope so too. I mean, and to be fair, like not every other app even has user accounts. Like this is a problem that a lot of my competitors didn't even have because they don't have user accounts on a sync service. Right. But, but I, you know, I did. And, and I thought when I developed this in 2013, I figured like, well, you know, you, you want to have an email and password to sign in because if, if, if it's an email then I can, then if you ever forget your password, I can send you a password reset email. And I was, I was really afraid of like, you know, people losing access to their accounts and, that I think you know that made sense when I was thinking all that in 2013, but we live in a different world now, and and not only GDPR, you know that that's that's the kind of the, the motivation to do all this stuff now instead of sometime, but in this world, like people keep getting hacked, there's constant data breaches. I would love like like my policy <laughs> for the small insight here, uh, my policy for if I ever get audited by the IRS. It basically like I just don't take that many deductions. I take like the big ones that matter and I don't take a lot of the small ones that add up to not that much because what I don't want to happen is for me to get audited by the IRS and for me to think I have anything to fear. If I get audited tomorrow, it'll be a pain, but I'm not going to be afraid of what they'll find because I know I'm not really taking any risks. I know I'm doing things above board. I know like I know I'm doing things as the way I'm supposed to be doing them. So it's not that big of a problem. It's just like, you know, it's just work, right? If I get hacked, if my servers get hacked and people steal a whole copy of my database, I want to have as little of people's personal information in that as possible. And that's, that I think is, is what all developers should strive for, not, you know, at, at any size. That, and I think that is what Apple strives for. Um, but, you know, ultimately... I would like there to be as little risk for me as possible if anyone else ever sees the data that I have from my users. And so I, I just want to lose as much of it as I can. I want to expand the conversation a little bit beyond Overcast and how you're handling data and talk a little bit more about privacy online as a whole, because this is a big topic right now. And how much do you think we should be concerned about our data out there? Because not all developers are being as conscientious about this as you are. Um, and so to expand that, what should we be worried about? And can you tell us a little bit about um, maybe what we should be thinking about as consumers to protect some of this data as you are, have been looking at it from a different stance as a developer? Ultimately, you know, to, to some degree, it's a losing battle. To some degree, like, you know, your credit card company already knows more about you than people like me ever will, right? Like, there's always going to be companies out there that, by the nature of what they do, by the nature of modern life, they're, or, or you know, by giving you a service that you really want for other reasons, they're going to have a ton of data about you. So, you know, I can think off the top of my head, like, lots of companies have data about me, and not only my credit card companies, my bank, uh, but also... You know, companies like Amazon and DuckDuckGo, the search engine I use, uh, and even Google, the search engine I fall back to when DuckDuckGo is not giving me what I want. <laughs> so, like, lots of these companies have lots of data about me. To some degree, you have... And Apple. Apple has lots of data about me, too. Um, to some degree, you have to... You have to kind of pick and choose, like, which ones you're going to be okay with. You know, because the reality is to live in modern life, to participate in modern life, especially in the tech world, uh, which is increasingly becoming the world... 
you have to participate in some of these ecosystems. So it's just a matter of, you know, figuring out which ones you're okay with and, and hoping that you, that you make good choices that, that align with your priorities and your needs and everything. Um, beyond that, when you're looking at like smaller apps or services or things like that, I think you have to be very careful with what apps you use and what data they have access to. Apple's been really good with the uh, with iOS about limiting what iOS apps can read about you without your permission. You know, in the early days, the address book was open and they found that apps were like sending you the entire contents of your address book without even asking you, without your knowledge at all, because the API was right there. Any developer could call the API and just iterate through your address book and, and see everything in it. Um, they they locked that down. They locked down things like your music collection, things like your photos. Like they, they locked down a whole bunch of stuff that used to have access without permission. Now, all those things require permission. So step one, if you're concerned about privacy, is use an iPhone or an iPad. Uh, and, and the more of your, like, untrusted computing operation, like if you're going to download a new app to do something, the more of that you can do on an iPhone or iPad, the better, because their security sandboxing model is just way more strict and way better than what you have on Macs or PCs. Um, and then otherwise just kind of, you know, they still can derive data about you. So I think be careful in the apps that you choose to use. You know, tr- I would say trust apps that are from larger or better known developers that have clear business models that aren't selling your data. So for instance, if you're looking for an image editor to run on the Mac, like there's lots of small companies, there's lots of big companies that offer image editors. I would, tr- I would trust any of those before I would go to the Mac app store or, or something like that and, and just search for like image cropping and download some random one I never heard of because it's free or it's cheap or whatever else like that. I would be more concerned about because who knows what the, how they're monetizing this app because the price isn't doing it, <laughs> you know? Uh, and the same thing applies on, on iOS too. Like, you know, you can download lots of weird apps to do weird things and they're full of ads and tracking codes. And even if you don't see ads, they could be running ad frameworks that are selling other parts of your data, like your location without your knowledge. So there, there's all sorts of shady, like scrap, scraping around for pennies, basically that that developers do when they're desperate or the big companies do when they're greedy or don't care. And it's kind of, it's, it's almost like, you know, like problems people have with the food system where it's increasingly, it's like, you know, it's better to like know where your food's coming from and know the people producing it. It's kind of how it is with software. Like do your research and figure out like who's making the software that you're letting run on your devices. Who, who is making what you are entrusting your data and your privacy to. And that's not easy for a lot of people to do. And it's not, it's not practical for people to, to do that with everything. Uh, just as the same, same is true for food. Uh, but the more you can do, the better. Well, I, I wish Apple would do a better job with the app store of, of, of surfacing the more reputable stuff to the top. I still think that could, I know it's better with, with iOS 11 in terms of, uh, making it more fun to find apps from people that I think Apple probably believes in. But just in general, if you say, I want the best Twitter app or the best podcast app, that doesn't necessarily get you to that trustworthy list right away. Yeah, the the App Store, I really wish the App Store did a lot more curation than it does. Like, I wish, like, <laughs> I was I was traveling the other day and I, wa- and I, I wanted to quickly paste one image on top of another 
and I couldn't figure out how to do this with any of the apps I had. So I searched for the, I searched the app store for like basically image compositing and, uh, and it was all sorts of garbage and it was impossible to find anything remotely reputable in the search list. I downloaded one that looked moderately okay. And it of course was filled with weird ads and banners and all sorts of weird stuff. It tried to get me to subscribe for $12 a month to save my image. Uh, it, it was just, it was just a, a full of like, it just looked scammy and I, and I thought, and oh, and then it's of course showed me interstitial ads and everything. And I'm like, you know, why is this even allowed in the store? Like, I wish Apple was even more strict about the app store rules, especially around things like quality and around like what types of monetization tricks are allowed. Uh, and maybe they will be. I, I don't know if right now they're not strict enough. It's, it's what I call gotcha apps. You know, you install them thinking that you're okay, but then you miss one box or you you don't read the contents of one thing and press okay. And then you start getting a monthly bill and you don't even realize it. All right. Well, it, it's, I think it, I don't want to scare everybody away, <laughs> but the, uh, but Katie raises a really good question. And I think going into the future, um, uh, Mac power users and, and people who are interested in this stuff, it's really up to us to keep an eye on that and not only uh, protect ourselves, but our family members and our friends, because I feel like there's a, there's a big public out there that really walks into things like Facebook and, and some of these other services without really having any idea what they, what they're giving up. Also, if you can delete Facebook, you won't miss it. This episode of the Mac power users is brought to you by one password introducing watchtower 2.0. Head over to onepassword.com slash MPU in all caps to get 20% off. We've talked about Watchtower in the past. It's one of my favorite features in One Password because it's like having an extra little buddy that spends all of its time checking the internet to make sure you've got safe passwords. Well, One Password has just released version 2.0 and just in time. You may have noticed that Twitter just recently asked all of its users to change their passwords because they had an internal security snafu. But what if you didn't get that notice? Watchtower, with its suite of security tools, makes it easy and gives you a comprehensive way to check the security of all of your passwords. With a click of a button, Watchtower audits your passwords and gives you an easy-to-read report with simple steps on how to fix any issues it finds. With Watchtower, 1Password graduates from being a bank vault full of secure passwords to an actual security assistant. Watchtower is always on the lookout and will notify you if there's been a security breach for a website you use. A bright red bar that's pretty difficult to miss will display across the top of the item, prompting you to change the password for that site. Watchtower can check your passwords to see if any have been exposed in a breach. It integrates with the HaveIBeenOwned.com service and it checks your passwords against 500 million exposed passwords, highlighting any that are found. Strong and unique passwords for every website is your surest way to keep safe. When a website is breached and your password compromised, that password can be used to sign in to other websites that use the same one. If you've reused that password elsewhere, you're putting those sites at risk. Watchtower not only shows you which of your passwords should be stronger, it also alerts you when you're using the same passwords for more than one website. Watchtower 2.0 is available today with your 1Password membership. It's a great service, and it will save your bacon. 
So go ahead and set up your own OnePassword.com account. Head over to OnePassword.com slash MPU to get 20% off. And while you're doing that, don't forget to change your Twitter password. Marco, now that we've brought everybody down and made them afraid, <laughs> uh, one of the things I know you and Tiff do uh, is you're both passionate about photography. Every time I see you at some, you know, mutual event, you always got some great camera gear and you take some beautiful pictures. So tell us uh, these days, what are you shooting with and, and what should people be excited about if they want to take pictures? Uh, Tiff shoots with the Canon uh, 5D Mark uh, four. Yeah. We had twos for a long time. And then we, I we thought you were three. on a Sony. Weren't you on a Sony? Well, yeah. So, so Tiff shoots with the cannons and for a while I'd gone back we, we went through this on ATP a little bit, but, uh, basically I was, I, I had a Sony, uh, a seven R two for a while. I was disappointed in its battery life and like just image processing performance. Like it was just very slow to navigate and everything. And the battery life was abysmal. It's, I, it still remains the only device I've ever bought that came with two of its own batteries. Like that's, they knew the battery life was that bad that they had to ship two batteries in the box. I, I feel, I feel like cameras generally have bad operating systems, if that makes any sense. I mean, the, the old, the old fashioned cameras with the dials are always better. Andy and was on the show a month or two ago. and was talking about, he picked a camera cause that has dials. That's all that mattered to him that he could use his fingers to, to manage it rather than try and use their lousy user interface. Exactly. And all the cameras suffer from this, uh, you know, at any price points, at any, at any market segment, they all have really mediocre, uh, like menus and software and stuff like that. So yeah, the more you can do with physical controls, the better anyway. so for a while I went back to uh, Canon, but the Sony's just take such an incredible pictures. Like what Sony has done with both sensors and with glass in the last, I don't know, five years or so, is just shocking and canon has not done that much to keep up nikon has kept up a little bit because they use sony sensors but the glass is still not quite there um but it's just incredible what you can get these days uh from from a lot of the cameras but especially from, from sony's from the from the sony full frame line and so uh i when the a7r3 was announced this past fall they fixed my complaints with the two they, they gave it way better battery life and way faster performance. And in fact, now I actually just played our, our friend uh, underscore David Smith just got the A7 III, which is si- very similar to the A7R three, just with a lower resolution sensor and a couple other minor changes. Um, and that's even faster because it has less pixels to deal with. So it's way faster. It's like way better battery life. So those problems are, are pretty much solved in the Sony world now. And the pictures you get out of these are just shockingly good. You know, Sony, as it's not only is the glass great and the, the sharpness you get, especially from the primes, is incredible. But then also, Sony sensors these days can basically see in the dark. Like you can, like you can set, one of the reasons why I like the Sony so much is that my hit rate of, you know, what, how many pictures I take versus how many I keep is way higher than with other cameras because you can crank the ISO up so high and still have usable low noise levels that you can then set shutter speed really high for instance and then you can shoot people who might be moving in lower than average light and it's totally fine and you know it just it makes up for the difference with iso and uh you know and of course the camera also has built-in stabilization at the sensor level so that you can have these wonderful primes and everything all be stabilized inherently and it has a great autofocus engine 
So I, so the combination of those things, basically, like, you know, high ISO ability, great autofocus, and stabilization for everything you put on it makes the hit rate very, very good. So I just, I love shooting with it. We had a, a, a listener come to a meetup at a, a, a F-stop. He had, he had an Olympus three-quarter, uh, I'm sorry, Olympus Micro Four Thirds, and he uh, had like an, a, a lens on there. It was a big lens, but it was like shooting like f-stop. I think it was a one point zero or like zero point nine. Nice. And he was basically shooting in the dark and taking pictures. And I, I'll never forget. That was the most impressive lens I've ever seen because that's what most people do: is you take pictures indoors and at twilight, and those are the pictures that you always can't get because of that. And you're saying so the Sony can take care of that through a high ISO, and I guess it's got a, a great noise filter or something on it to do that. Yeah, I mean, and it, most of it is actually not being done at like you know the filtering software level. Most of it is just that it has a really good sensor, like that's and that's part of the reason that I like full frame so much is because you have a much larger sensor to work with, and there are some downsides to full frame, you know, cost being the big one, and also just size. Uh, but I love full frame pictures. I, I went full frame. Back with the back with the five D Mark II in two thousand eight, and I haven't gone back. Are people using the Sony's? Do they are they good for video as well, or are they just um, uh, still photography? A lot of video people use them. I, I I think they're really good for video, but because I'm not a video person, I can't I can't authoritatively say. But I'm I think they're I think they're pretty popular for that. So and what if someone's listening? What um. You said you so you prefer the prime lenses, or do you have to get Sony lenses with the Sony camera? I don't even know. You can actually get adapters for the Sony camera that can fit, that can mount, and even autofocus lenses from Canon and I think Nikon also. It's it's a very and even Leica. You, it's a very adaptable system, uh, just because of the, of the way it was designed. But I I almost always just shoot with two Sony primes: the thirty five f two point eight and the fifty five f one point eight. Those are both amazing lenses. The 55 is a, an incredible, like, medium to portrait lens. It, it is insanely sharp, and the pictures it takes are just ridiculously good. And the 35, it's, you know, quote, only f2.8, but at 35 millimeter, that doesn't matter that much. And it's so small and so easily packable. It's, it's incredibly practical for just, like, packing and walking around with. So I love those two lenses. And of course, it also is stunningly sharp and everything. So I love those two lenses. That's, uh, that's all I have for the Sony, and it's, that's all I need. Yeah, really? Wow. So you're back on Sony, and, um, and you're liking it. And that's, pro- that's probably why you like the SD card slot on your MacBook Pro. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, <laughs> and on my iMac Pro, like, it's great to be able to just take the card out. I mean, you know, a lot of, you know, every camera you can connect via USB and transfer the photos that way. And if I, you know, if, if I'm like on a trip in a pinch and I need to transfer it, I can do that. It's just nicer if I don't have to, because for instance, if you're transferring through, through USB, not only do you have to like, you know, pull that weird little flap off the ports and have a cable that fits it with you, um, but also then the camera is not being able to be used during that time. You can't be dumping photos as you're filling up the next card or as you continue shooting the event that you're at. Um, so, and also, you know, one of the arguments people use for, why SD card slots aren't necessary anymore, which is an argument only made by people who don't use them, uh, is is that you can just use Wi-Fi transfer. And Wi-Fi transfer just is not fast enough. And almost no cameras support transferring raw files over Wi-Fi. Those that do, it's incredibly slow. And again, that also monopolizes the camera usually while it's in use. So it's just not a solution for pros or almost anybody, really. Wi-Fi is a terrible solution to photo transfer from cameras. Is it a gimmick at this point, or is it is it 
I mean, is it is it just a gimmick or is it got some use? It it sounds really nice. It's the kind of thing. Remember, like in in the late nineties, when everybody bought webcams for their PCs, and because it sounded like a good idea to video chat with people, and everybody had a had a webcam on their PC that they used like once and never again because it was such a pain in the butt to actually use it for anything, and you know the quality you got was terrible and everything. That I feel like is Wi-Fi and cameras today. Like you can do it. It's a thing that when I'm shopping for one, I always get excited. Ooh, this one has Wi-Fi, <laughs> and I'll I'll be able that'll save me all sorts of time. I'll be able to do these cool things. And in practice, using the Wi-Fi and cameras is so cumbersome and so slow and so limited that I almost never do it. So, um, what are you doing your processing on? You know, you, you got Sony to capture the image. Uh, Aperture's gone. Uh, wh- where are you going to work on your photos? I am using Lightroom, which is now renamed to Lightroom Classic, <laughs> because uh, it's. It, I've been using it for a long time. It's what I know. Um, it 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 had a lot of performance problems on previous computers and with previous cameras, but on the iMac Pro and with recent versions of Lightroom, they've actually gotten a lot faster. So, and that's one thing I really love about this computer. Talking about earlier about maxing out all your CPU cores. When I'm doing a Lightroom import, I'm generating tons of previews and everything and applying effects like in, in batches to the whole import. It maxes out all 10 CPU cores. And it's done <laughs> way faster than it was on my previous iMac because uh, I'd only had four cores and they were slower ones. So it's, it's a great upgrade for that. Um, so yeah, all Lightroom. And then what I do basically is I... My workflow uh, is that I... When I shoot something on the, on the big camera... I'll take the whole shoot into Lightroom. I will do all of my like picking and sorting and deleting and everything else there. And then I will export final JPEGs to Apple Photos. Uh, now, I, I'm one of those weirdos. I've been taking pictures of my iPhone for several years now. I, I've just kind of given up on cameras in general because I'm not as an expert as you are. And the um, I really like the benefits of having like GPS embedded in all my pictures and the idea that it's in my pocket. And I totally understand that, like, especially when you've got something to the level of a Sony camera, uh, that there are pictures you're going to get that I won't, especially in dark rooms. Uh, in my life, that's probably the most relevant place where I can't get the pictures. But what what is the cutoff point for folks listening where they should start thinking about upgrading to a camera like this, where they're used to taking pictures with their iPhone? I think, you know, the... <sighs> We all have gone through this process, I think, where many of us who used to have nice cameras have dramatically reduced the amount of photos we've shot or eliminated them completely uh, because the phone cameras are so good. And I've done, this, I've done the same thing. I have this great camera. Relatively speaking, I hardly ever use it. You know, I, I use my iPhone camera the vast majority of the time because it's with me. I usually don't have my big camera with me. But when I do shoot with the big camera and I see those pictures, and also, when I, when I take pictures that I shot on my iPhone and try to view them big on my 5K iMac, <laughs> I, I'm very happy I have the big camera. Because the iPhone photos... Look, the iPhone camera is fantastic for what it is. It's a little tiny sensor that had to cost probably about 30 or 40 bucks to make the whole component cost work out. It's great for that. But it just on a, on a physics and economics level, it's really hard for that to compete with what you can get from a giant full frame sensor with like an eight hundred dollar lens in front of it. Like that's you just can't compete with that. And it's, and it's so, not fair. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> it's it's a totally different beast, right? And so what I find the iPhone camera is great when it's the only camera you have with you. 
it's also surprisingly great for video even compared to pro cameras because some of the some of the tricks it does to make it easier for you know non-video pros like me to to take good video uh but i'm never that happy with the iphone photos when i look at them on something bigger than an iphone that's that's when i really am disappointed in them they're great for browsing on your phone they're great for posting to instagram they're great if it's all you have with you but when you have a, a better camera and you see the difference between what your phone can shoot and what the better camera can shoot when you say view it on a bigger screen on a mac or something or on an, even on an ipad or when you want it when you have to zoom in or crop a little bit to get what you want out of it the difference is pretty big that you know you start seeing like oh yeah that's just a really tiny sensor and there's only so much you can do i feel like we've gone kind of full circle just like uh, looking at the cores on your menu bar <laughs> when you're pressing the limits with your pictures is when you probably need to start thinking about upgrading exactly and also you know as you mentioned in low light it's really hard for that iphone camera to get a lot of detail or to to, to get good looking pictures uh because it, it's just it's very low light it's hard for that little sensor to do that also the iphone camera only has either one or two depending on which iphone model you have uh focal distances you know like the 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 one in the iphone 10 is about i think it's about 28 millimeter and about 45 millimeter for the two lenses and if if what you're looking to create with a picture is a perspective or reach that those two focal distances can't get you because they aren't that far in then you you can only use a, a big camera or i mean i guess you can like bolt on extra lenses to it but those are always kind of finicky um so there's still a role for big cameras in getting better quality pictures and getting pictures in environments or with needs or perspectives that the iphone cameras can't do well i love that the big camera companies are feeling the heat now and that the the constant improvements to the phone cameras not just the iphone but the android as well is making them want to distinguish themselves better. And I feel like, you know, the iPhone is not going to catch up to your Sony anytime soon. So um, that's good. You know, I hope that we continue to see that. And as people get to a point in their life that they want to take better pictures, there's there's additional options out there for them. And I guess the rule, the laws of physics are going to help uh, keep that the case for a while. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Omni Group and the all-new Omni Outliner 3 for iOS. You can learn more and start a free trial by heading over to omnigroup.com. With Omni Outliner version 3 for iOS, the best outlining application for iOS just got a whole lot better. Whether you want to capture your thoughts, take notes for a class, jot down ideas, begin outlining your next great American novel, whatever you want to do, Omni Outliner has you covered. It is the place to create perfect outlines in a simple but powerful productivity application. Omni Outliner Essentials for iOS starts at just $9.99, meaning anyone can have the power of Omni Outliner right at their fingertips. The Essentials version gives you everything you need to get started outlining, including beautiful themes, the ability to print and PDF support, the ability to drag and drop information in and out of your outlines, the ability to export into Microsoft Word, automatic dark and light modes, and the ability to sync your documents using their own OmniPresence sync server. Their free open source platform for syncing all of your Omni documents. And if you upgrade to the pro version, you can get a whole lot more, such as support for Omni automation, custom themes and templates, password encryption, custom smart filters and sort types, audio recording, more powerful drag and drop features, additional export formats, 
and a whole lot more. Best of all, you can start using Omni Outliner 3 for iOS today. There is a free trial available in the App Store uh, via in-app purchase. With a two-week free trial, you can try all of the features of Essentials and Pro. And after the trial, you can even continue to use Omni Outliner to view documents for free. So check it out over at omnigroup.com. And why not head on over to the App Store, download it, and start making your own amazing outlines today. So thanks to the Omni Group for their continued support of Mac Power users. You know, Marco, uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, because you know, you, you've taken a pretty strong position on the new MacBooks that you've you've regressed you know, to the older one. Um, and one of the things I hear from a lot of, of pundits out there is they're like, you know, there's no room left for innovation on the Mac, you know, that everything's going to iOS these days. Um, I love my iOS devices, but I also love the Mac. I've loved the Mac since the very first one showed up. And uh, I, I actually believe that there's a lot of room to make the Mac better. And I just thought it'd be fun to do a little thought experiment with Marco Armit to say, let's say tomorrow you wake up and that uh, you're sitting in Tim Cook's chair and uh, you get free reign to make changes as to the way the Mac goes in the next five, 10 years. What would you do? I mean, first of all, I'd probably be fired within like a week, but uh, put that aside. <laughs> I, I get that. I like if, if for some reason I had like as much, you know, political and board and investor power as somebody like Steve did when he was there, uh, where I was basically not fireable. Um, it's hard for me to say because, you know, it's it's a really big company, big finance, whatever else. So, again, I'd be fired pretty fast, I think. But uh, OK, well, let's pretend let's pretend you say. You say we're we're gonna leave the iPhone and the iPad going so the the cash cow will continue to feed, but you know, give me some room on the Mac. I want to see a team of people and a company above and below it that believes that the Mac is not done because all we see, you know, you're right. All we see from like the pundits and everything is that hey, the Mac is there's pretty much nothing to do. It's done. And it's you only you only think it's done if either you're being very short sighted or you haven't thought about the problem very much. Because every day when you use a Mac, you can find things that you know. I wish you could maybe did this thing a little bit better. I mentioned earlier, for instance, uh, that the the iOS security sandboxing model is way less risky for downloading untrusted apps. Why can't the Mac have something like that? It doesn't have to be the only option, but why? Like the Mac right now has a really basic sandboxing model that they made like seven or eight years ago and then never touched again. They never really finished it, never made it good. Tons of apps still aren't sandboxed because they kind of can't be. They basically like opt out of the whole system. The app store on, on the Mac is terrible. Uh, it's also seemingly hasn't been touched in about seven or eight years. Um, I think the entire uh, document model that was introduced in Lion uh, is still not all there it's still very confusing for people that could use some work and refinement um you know icloud drive and its integration could use a lot more work also just fundamentally you know like there, there's little feature things like i think Macs with built-in cellular should already exist and there's lots of api level things you can do to distinguish uh whether something should run on cellular networks or not they should use those <laughs> and actually offer controls um there's there's so much on the mac you know if you if you look at the way it's structured now the Mac represents a general like, you know, UI and windowing and file management system that has not really been reconsidered or changed in, a, in decades, in, in a very long time. And we see 
by iOS coming out, we see that like different types of ways to do things are possible and can be done and can be very useful and successful. So the, the Mac, look at what Microsoft is doing. Microsoft is doing these crazy experiments where they try to combine tablets with desktops and try to have these big interfaces that can be touch interfaces and mouse and pointer inter- or mouse and keyboard interfaces. They have these, these crazy computers like the Surface Studio that, that, that it's like the big iMac thing that can tilt down and you can use a pen on the, on the giant screen. You know, Microsoft, they're, they're doing experimentation here in the PC. They're trying to push the PC forward. And, you know, bless them. They're Microsoft. They're not doing a very good job of it. But they're trying, right? They're, they're at least trying new things. Microsoft does not seem to believe that computing on the desktop is done. Apple does seem to believe that in a lot of ways. It does look like Apple doesn't want to push the Mac forward. And I think that's, I, there's so many ways that it can be pushed forward. There's so many things that should be redone or rethought you know, from, you know, as things I mentioned earlier, the things like security sandboxing, um, things like where apps, how apps get installed, you know, the whole thing with like, you know, unzip a DMG and then mount this virtual DMG. That's all dumb. Um, make the Mac app store good enough that people can use it and also give a, you know, a, a better installation mechanism for the rest of us. Um, you know, as I said, cellular, uh, I would like not every app I launch to be able to access all the files in my home folder. That's a different sandboxing model. Um, I would like the where apps put their files to be contained. So like on iOS, when you delete an app, all of its files are deleted. It's gone completely. You don't need like cleaner apps to help you find and delete all the files. They're just gone on the Mac apps spew files all over the place. And when you delete the app, those files just stay there. So like there, again, there's like, there's so much stuff on the Mac that they could work on. They could improve if they really wanted to things like the rumored project Marzipan about, being able to write the same code for the interface that runs on iOS devices and the Mac, or at least code that's less different than it is now. Because right now it's very different and often in fairly needless and legacy-based ways. That's, you know, a, a huge new UI framework on the Mac would be great. That would that could solve that. There are useful services on iOS that could be brought to the Mac. Things like the way push notifications work, the way in-app purchases work, um, the way background refresh works. All of these things either don't exist on the Mac or exist in some much more limited and or buggy way that makes them less useful. Like we, we, Computing has moved in a lot of ways in the last 10 years with iOS, and the Mac has learned very little from that. It has moved on very little from where it was. I don't think iOS should be the only platform moving forward. The Mac is clearly where many of us not only are getting a lot of our work done, but will continue to get a lot of our work done. Like it's not over. It's not fading away. It's pre- it's pretty consistent. Actually, it's, it's growing slowly and staying pretty consistent and we're all still using it for a lot of our work. So this platform should not just be frozen in time 10 years ago. It should be brought forward the same way the whole rest of the industry has. It's like this artificial restraint on imagination and, I feel like not only in all the software areas you talked about, I feel like there's room to grow in hardware as well. I mean, Apple always was the company pushing the envelope on hardware and it just, except on thinner and lighter, they really haven't done that lately. And, and I would like them to do that. So, uh, CEO Marco, welcome to your new job. <laughs> I'll be fired you, next week. <laughs> just put the, 
pieces in place before they fire you. That's all I ask. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to see that as well. And I, I hope that, you know, the, the iMac Pro to me is the biggest shining light in this in some time for the Mac because I feel like there was true innovation going on there, not just for the sake of, of having something to talk about on stage. I mean, um, the the way it handles noise, the way, I mean, there's just a lot. We didn't even talk about a lot of the pieces of the iMac Pro, but it is an innovative machine that's innovative in ways that you don't necessarily brag about, but ways that I think a user can appreciate. And that's what I always associate with Apple hardware. And I'd like to see that make its way down the line. Yeah, I, I hope, you know, the, the iMac Pro, in addition to being my favorite Mac, I think maybe ever so far, um, because it's just, it's so good and it's so fast. And you mentioned noise, it's so quiet. I've never heard the fan spin up. You know, the iMac Pro, I think, gives me hope that if they made this, and there, there wasn't, you know, massive, like, Wall Street financial type reasons to make this. The, the audience for it is probably fairly small, um, you know, but they, they, did a, they didn't just, like, crap it out. They did a lot of custom engineering for it to make it really good. And, you know, things like the T2 and that, that, didn't, that weren't really, like, necessary, but that improved things and make it nice and that have only so far appeared in this. This gives me hope that the weird period that we've seen for the last few years where it seemed like Mac hardware was just being left to die and the updates they did were bad. Uh, the iMac Pro gives me hope that might have just been a temporary bad spot and that maybe they have learned from their mistakes and are turning things around and we just haven't seen the rest of the products that resulted from that yet. So I hope that's where we're going. I, I, I do, you know, I leave this topic in a hopeful state right now. Uh, I hope this summer we'll see an improved revision of the laptops. And I hope next year when the Mac pro allegedly comes out, I hope it's really good too. Um, but based on the iMac pro, I am tentatively optimistic. Last question. Uh, since we've been talking about Macs, you got one or two little utility or favorite apps that people may not have heard of. They should get on their Mac. Well, uh, definitely iStat menus, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it is, it is by far, uh, it's, it's incredibly useful. I love it. Um, I'm also a big fan of Solver, which I think your audience probably knows pretty well by now. When, back when I was on like forever ago, I'm pretty sure I promoted it then too. I've been using Solver since like 2008 or something like that. And I've been yelling at the world until they finally got it. And I think they finally have. So that's good. <laughs> and uh, It's like a calculator, spreadsheet, notepad. It's kind of an interesting app. Oh, it's great. Like it, you'll never launch the built-in calculator again and you will reduce the amount of times you launch spreadsheets, uh, which is nice. And then I also, uh, if you're a programmer, I really love the uh, Tower app for Git. It's called Git Tower or simply just Tower. Um, it's by far the best Git command or Git interface I've ever used. And it has gotten me away from almost ever using the Git command line, which is unusual for me. Usually I just use the command line versions of all programmer tools, but that one I don't. And finally, uh, ARC Backup, A-R-Q Backup. You probably mentioned that as well, but uh, basically it's a wonderful little backup utility that lets you back up to all sorts of different online storage uh, type platforms. The one I use Amazon, is Amazon. and Yeah. The one I use is Backblaze B2, which is basically Backblaze's uh, version of Amazon S3. Uh, and it has much better pricing. Uh, and so it's it seems great so far. And, and I use it. Uh, I actually stopped using the Backblaze regular client. And now I just exclusively use Backblaze B2 on my main computer uh, through Arc because Arc gives me a little more control and I, I, I kind of like the UI a little bit better. Uh, so I'm, it's like I'm still using Backblaze, but I'm not using their app anymore on my, on my main computer. 
Of course, Marco rolls his own offline backup. Of course, <laughs> of course he does. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? We are not going to wait 300 episodes, so we have you back. I, I think once <laughs> the, the new Mac Pro comes out, because you're kind of our resident expert of uh, Mac Pros, so you've covered the iMac Pro for us. I think we're going to have to have you back after the Mac Pro, because I have this sneaking suspicion you're going to get one, and uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on it once it lands on your desk. That is very likely. <laughs> we can't wait to cover that. Marco, why don't you let people know, uh, I think they already do, but where, where they can they can find you on the Internet and what you're up to these days? Uh, sure, yeah. So, uh, obviously, please use Overcast if you don't yet. Uh, I would love it if you did. Overcast.fm. Uh, I am Marco Arment on Twitter, and I occasionally blog at Marco.org. All right. Sounds like a great place. And uh, we will talk to you all next week. We do have links to everything that we talked about in this episode in our show notes. You can find those at relay.fm slash MPU. And we do want to thank our sponsors for this episode, Away, Squarespace, Omni, and 1Password. And we'll talk to you all soon.